Welcome to the Book Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode 21, in which we will be discussing The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. Hello, Lissa. Hi, Marion. Okay, we're going to do this finally. You, it's been me. a long time. <laughs> yes, we were um, in, in the full transparency. We tried to record this earlier, and even the software was like, no, you shall never record a podcast about the Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. No, but we are going to do it. We're going to triumph. We are going to triumph. We are and, going to talk about Splendid and Vile And things. Vile, yes. Both splendid and vile. And I have to say, there was a moment, and I was reading the book, and I came across that phrase in the book. And I was like, that's it! That's the title! I see it! I found the spot! It's like Easter egg hunting. That's awesome. um, To find that in there. And it is in a secret diary (gasps) being kept by one of Winston Churchill's secretaries, who knows he's not supposed to keep secret diaries, but does it anyway. Which I found amusing and also delightful to be able to read later. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is fascinating. It's like, I'm just going to do it anyway. And, it is, and But he, I did not feel like he was the biggest security risk as a character in this book. So, um, yeah. There's, there's that. So There is that. We were discussing, it's a beautiful sunny day here where I am as if it were spring. Um, yes, I enjoyed the sunshine for a brief moment when I ran outside to uncover my tomato pan plants from where they have been under cardboard boxes all night and um it was it was sunny i felt like they would get some good sun today before i recover them again yes we were having american midwest where the season varies depending on the time of day we've had sure we've had snow and delicious sunshine all in the past couple days and uh i know my baseball team was playing yesterday in 34 degree weather so that seems I, so mean. Like it just makes my hands ache to think about. Yeah, they were they're actually talking like if you get, you know, like a stinger, like a, you know, from hitting a ball or whatever, the pain just never goes away when it's that cold. And of course, the the announcers were quite bitter about it up in their open booth overlooking beautiful Wrigley Field. Oh, uh, yes. Um, and in- because <laughs> it's spring, uh, my children are planning a water balloon fight with their friends for this weekend. There you and go. I think it's next, spring. yeah, next Monday it's supposed to be hit 80. Yeah. So. Like I cracked, I broke and I bought like 220 of those easy fill water balloons. <gasps> yes. Whoever invented those. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I filled a lot of water balloons by hand in my time and it's not pleasant. So uh, they're expensive, but I'm willing to just say, look, here's 45 water balloons. Go throw them at each other, and it's instant. So it's good. Ah, the pleasures of, of not living in Blitz-era London. That's true. There were, like, no water balloons in this entire book that I remember. <laughs> I don't think any. Lots of other things. Other barrage balloons. Right. And lots of ways to use water to put out fires. 
That's correct. So, hey, we're just, we're really on topic. Here, we are. When you think about Always. it. <laughs> and we were, we were looking inside this book to uh, remind the public at large what it is about. Yes. Uh, and I have that here if you want me to read that or synopsize it. Uh, yes, reveal to us what this book was about. Although we know it was splendid and vile. It is splendid and vile, um, but there's no devils and no white cities, which is useful since we both failed to read that Eric Larson book because it was too scary. Too scary. So on Winston Churchill's first day as prime minister, Hitler invaded Holland and Belgium. Poland and Czechoslovakia had already fallen and the Dunkirk evacuation was just two weeks away. For the next 12 months, Hitler would wage a relentless bombing campaign, killing 45,000 Britons. It was up to Churchill to hold the country together and persuade President Franklin Roosevelt that Britain was an ally, uh, a worthy ally, and willing to fight to the end. In The Splendid and Vile, Eric Larson shows in cinematic detail how Churchill taught the British people the art of being fearless. It's a story of political brinksmanship, but it's also an intimate domestic drama set against the backdrop of Churchill's prime ministerial country home, Chequers, his wartime retreat, Ditchley, where he and his entourage go when the moon is brightest and a bombing threat is highest, and of course, 10 Downing Street in London. Drawing on diaries, original archival documents, and once-secret intelligence reports, some released only recently, Larson provides a new lens on London's darkest year through the day-to-day experience of Churchill and those closest to him. His wife, Clementine, their youngest daughter, Mary, who chafes against her parents' wartime's protectiveness, their son, Randolph, and his beautiful, unhappy wife, Pamela. Pamela's illicit lover, a dashing American emissary, and the advisors in Churchill's secret circle to whom he turns in hardest moments. The Splendid and Vile takes readers out of today's political dysfunction and back to a time of true leadership when, in the face of unrelenting horror, Churchill's eloquence, courage, and perseverance bound a country and a family together. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? It does. I think it did all those things. Like, that's a really fair... It is. ...summary. It is. Except I will say that it didn't necessarily take me out of today's political dysfunction as much as remind me of today's political dysfunction. And all the time. Like, on every page. <laughs> on every page. And the... I was, like, compare contrasting... Churchill and the other people in the book versus modern day leaders and how messages are crafted and how or whether political leaders are able to to craft a story that we all feel like we're part of uh, so that we can work toward a common goal or not. This book talks about the British and the Germans as like two, you know, separate things. Um, But there's not a lot of divisiveness within the British or within the Germans that we see in this book, I don't think. Yes, everybody, each country has a leader who is really excellent at crafting story, at, at creating a vision uh, to bring their separate groups of people together to go in one direction. Um, even when each of those people probably knows a reality of something different, how horrible <laughs> things are in Britain, for example, how 
close to disaster they are constantly and yet they are always like oh we're gonna win this thing just you know you know keep calm and carry on and we don't really hear from churchill's detractors either though which i really didn't notice until just now well at the the beginning there is this kind of who's going to be the prime minister yes and churchill is not anybody's first choice except churchill's Uh, Like the king, he's not the king's first choice. There's another guy who really wants to be the prime minister and is kind of uh, disturbed that he doesn't get to be the prime minister and later gets sent off to be the ambassador to the United States, which is really a a shipping you off stage, kind of out of our way type scenario. And he knows it, but he doesn't ever try to undermine Churchill during this or have an overthrow of power or you know, worm his way to the front. Uh, He just kind of accepts that it's not my turn to be prime minister right now. Um, And so I'm going to pitch in. Even if I feel some personal disappointment or resentment or or have a difference of opinion here. And I think there's some... When they're debating, should we do this or that or whatever? I think people do discuss things. Uh, but yeah, a lot of that is not, you don't get that it was super divisive. We know that, that Churchill's other departments and ministers hate the, oh, what is his name? Who's in charge of the... Beaverbrook. Yeah, Beaverbrook, who's in charge of everything. <laughs> the yeah. book of Farsing can tell. Yes, he starts off in charge of spitfire production or something and ends up in charge of everything and you get that other ministers don't care for him or they think he has too many resources Um, maybe that's part of the compelling portrait of leadership in a time of crisis is to is to put somebody else in that role where you're going to have to do things that people hate you for yep Hmm. let them hate people and beaver book resigns like every other chapter Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> He's like, I'm resigning for real this time. Winston, I mean it. I'm out of here. And then Winston Churchill's like, don't leave me, Beaverbrook. And then he stays. So, yeah. And often comes back to like more power or more, more power. Yeah, here, I'll give you more carrots. And it, oh, well, okay. For more carrots, I'll stay. Yes. Um, hmm. So it was, yeah, it, it is a, an interesting and fascinating book. And, um, on the the how you view leaders or who are these people front I did ask myself a lot how real is real even when it's exhaustively researched and this is exhaustively researched the number of notes pages at the back wow it's a lot I have to say it there was a point when I was reading this I'm like oh my gosh this is taking me forever to read and I seem to have so much left. And then I realized, oh, the last umpteen pages are all notes. And I only have this sliver of book left. I'm like, whew, I'm going to make it. It's going to be. And I did enjoy it uh, very, very much. Every minute I was reading, I was totally fascinated. It just seemed to never end. So, but in terms of, he would describe things very evocatively. I, I'm sure I should have flagged some pages where he was doing that but describing things or people's actions or how they said things. And he says, if somebody says something in this book, there's documentation that they said it. Right. He's not making up any dialogue. But in terms of those 
smooth words or things. I was remembering uh, Churchill and somebody else are strolling down the street or whatever uh, in the nighttime, and there's a paper boy who sasses him, and he's amused, and he laughs in a certain manner, which I can't remember what it is. And I thought, how do you know that he was strolling instead of, you know, barging or crawling or just walking, man, just going from place A to place B? What kind of what kind of uh, proof do you have of those things versus interpretation or just good writing? Um, so in all examples of narrative nonfiction, I always wonder what is the truth truth and what is the, the story truth? Here, I thought the same thing when I read The Big Burn, which is a book I really loved. Um, in terms of, like, not everything that Churchill did in that year is in this book, right? Only some things. So in the end, you still have to make choices or of what you're going to put in a book and what you're not going to put in a book. That's so tricky. And it's so tricky as a reader, like, do you just go all in and buy into like, this is the, you know, this is the trip that Eric Larson is taking me on? Um, you know, do you question it as you read? Um, all the notes are there. You could go, I mean, the bibliography, <laughs> like you could go read another hundred books on this topic if you get really into it. Um, I mean, I appreciated the way that Eric Larson can can write this story that keeps me engaged, that keeps me caring about the characters, that makes me worry for them, that uh, makes me keep coming back to a book that like, not just for the podcasting deadline that we kept pushing back so I could finish, but just in general, like I wanted to, to get to the end because I was interested in the story Eric Larson was telling me. Right. Like I understood that like looking it up on Wikipedia to see how the war turns out was not... <laughs> Not going to be the same experience as seeing what what narrative conclusion he was going to bring us to in this story. Yes. And the 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 turning of reality into something exciting or interesting as a narrative that follows the rules was fascinating to me because um, I feel like sometimes I come down hard on on memoirists, um, which. I don't mean to, and, and I don't read a lot of memoir, but I know a lot of memoirists. And even when you're writing your own story, you you have to, to pick and choose. Because, you know, if you write, they said there's a reason why books don't read like reality. Fiction books don't read like reality because there's lots of little things you do in your day that are deadly, deadly dull to read about. And reality does not have the nice story arc that you look for in fiction, right? Right. Things don't, don't tie up neatly with a bow on it. Uh, and it's interesting to me to watch him trying to turn the truth of, of reality, things that really happened into an exciting narrative that keeps me wanting to turn the pages. And there are a lot of things that don't get tied up in here. And that picking and choosing of things I think matters. We we're talking about, um, before things really get revved up in the war, before the bombing of London starts, when Britain is realizing it's probably going to have to go it alone, at least for a while, and the trouble that they're in, and so much depends on 
France's reaction, how long France holds out against the Germans before surrendering, and what France is going to do with its airplanes, and what France is going to do with its ships, and what France is going to do with its soldiers, and how those decisions are going to impact how long or if Britain survives against the Germans. Churchill several times gets on a dinky tiny little airplane and flies to France personally to talk to people. And every time he did it, I was freaking out. Uh, because that just seemed like a ter- terrible idea to me. I'm like, you're the prime minister. Send somebody else. It made it... It made it feel so risky for him to be doing that. And it helped me understand as a reader who doesn't watch a lot of war movies or read a lot of other stories, especially real like nonfiction stories about war times, um, how important it was, how he saw at least how important it was to have those conversations in person, to not have a written record of them, to not entrust someone else with it. Um, it helped me see it, that he believed it to be worth that risk even if I didn't understand that it was, or agree, that it was worth that risk. So Eric Larson does not make a judgment in the book over whether this action is either A, heroic, because Churchill's willing to put himself on the line to to help get the result we need, or whether that is his, like, megalomania, you know, or total self-absorption you could view it as only I can go and, and fix this and I can't trust this to anyone else or whether it's just stupid for the leader of Great Britain to go into what is more or less occupied territory to have these conversations um, and you you could I'm sure there's a temptation in writing to to characterize that those actions and make an interpretation of it um, but I think he does a good job not not trying to interpret those actions. So I'd leave, leave us to interpret Churchill the way we want to. But also you're choosing which details you put in and which details you live out to build a picture of Churchill. Yeah, that's so interesting because he's able to, I think, successfully give us this portrayal that we see as not not too commentary and judgmental mm-hmm. and presenting us sort of the the facts as he has found them in his research but like pretty clearly like on the very front of the very top of the inside front cover it calls the publisher calls this a fresh and compelling portrait of leadership in a time of crisis so like Definitely, he's trying to do a certain thing. Yes, yes. But also, it's a compelling portrait of a deeply weird person <laughs> being a leader in a, in a time so of crisis. Weird. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> he's, he, is, he is a character um, with his, his pink silk pajamas, you know, and his little blue boiler suits that we like to get dressed up in. Or just like this morning, I was reading the very end, like right before we started recording, and uh, he's like at the White House, stark naked. Stark naked! And the president comes in, and he's like, oh no, it's fine, we're all friends here. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have anything to and hide. He just, and yeah, and he just like wanders around, stark naked, smoking a cigar, and like speechifying with Roosevelt, and I'm like, which was another thing, he like flies across, you know, the ocean... And war's still ongoing. 
here. And I'm like, Winston, no, don't do that. You'll get shot at. So, but yes, completely naked. And I can't imagine. I mean, wow. How, yeah. how, did, how did I never hear of this before? I'm wondering. Because um, there was not Instagram. There was not Instagram. Man, I don't want to see any naked Churchills on Instagram either. I just got to say. I mean, I think that they would, that might be against their terms of service. <laughs> Winston Churchill, Instagram model. Oh, leadership in action. Um, I just, so, I mean, those inside things, though, that we see yeah. help us without Eric Larson saying what you saw in the news about Churchill was very different. All his famous speeches are very different than what it was like to actually be around him in these moments. Right. Like instead of. And, and how many of his great speeches that, were kind of flops at first. Right. You know, and you think of them as being these. He's said it and everybody was like, ah, but in fact, several of his speeches were, were not good in their first iteration or he made them in, in parliament and they were great, but they weren't broadcast direct and he had to re-record them and the recording was not well, but I was thinking of in terms of, of what we were talking about with, with things that you don't know or how that brings it more to life for you. There's a point where Churchill's daughter, Mary is out on the town. Like at a, at a, I don't know, like a debutante thing. And then they're all going to go dancing. Oh yeah. The dance club. And they go to the dance club and the dance club has been bombed. So they just go to a different dance club, but it, it brings home to you more weirdly, the kind of combination of, of horror and determined normalcy that Which... is going on there. Yeah, which um, might have some relevance in the modern world as we all as a society and individuals try to reopen after a pandemic. Right. Like, pretty exactly. Yes, pretty exactly. Like, yes, yes. This was a very timely book, although I think it was years in the making and didn't know it would be timely. Sure, yes. And it, and that's maybe the sign of a, of a, of a really good book that you can relate whatever your reality, personal reality of the moment is to what is going on in this book and how it's speaking to you. And maybe it's speaking to us differently because of what did happen in the modern experience versus, versus what Eric Larson wanted it to. I wish we had him here to ask him. Like, what were you hoping it would, how were you hoping it would relate to this versus how the moment I'm in causes me to relate to it. And what moments were you writing it for? Yeah. In your own mind. Yeah. Because you pick it up on a narrative structure. You pick it up, you know, just as Churchill comes to power, which is a great place to pick it up. Even though events are already in motion, you know, stuff has happened. Things have gone down here and we're right on the cusp of war. Churchill comes to power, but it just goes for this year and then it stops. It doesn't take us to the end of the war. It just takes us to through this moment and I th yeah. I thought that was an interesting choice and, and Lord knows it would be exhausting if you had to know this much about four or five years of right. what is going on. And you know, the the war really moved away from whether or not the British are gonna survive or not as a as a plot line in that war, so to speak. To by the end of it the Americans are kind of coming on board. 
um, and uh, Britain is in a better way. Although I kept waiting for the, the doodle bugs to show up in this, and they, and they didn't. The bombs that Germany would just send over that would run out of gas and fall on you and die. Um, so, yeah, narratively, I thought he did a good job of, of taking this and choosing his characters with care um, to, even though, because it's the truth, some things don't happen, like the secretary who's keeping a secret diary, I kept expecting him to get over. He's in love with this girl who does not love him back. I expect him to, I expected that to reach resolution more or for him to go away and become a war hero after all, as is his desire to leave being a secretary and go do that. And in that single year, those things don't necessarily resolve neatly. Um, but I ended up researching lots of people to find out what happened to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it was interesting. It was interesting. And, and also, I'm a package rattler. I'm like, I can't take it. Does he survive or does he not survive? Because I don't know. So I'd have right. to go. And, and I'm like, what happens to Pamela? I have to go find out what happens to Pamela. So um, I, I loved Pamela's story. I kept thinking, because you had mentioned it previously, I kept thinking I wouldn't like it or like that I, sh I don't even know. I just had this vibe that like yeah. that I wasn't going to like her. Yeah. But then like... She's like totally the hidden romance plot of the whole book. She is kind of. And, you know, Randolph, who's Churchill's son, is so awful. So unrepentantly awful the whole yes. time. But I think she becomes more uh, sympathetic because you're like, dang, Pamela, if you got to put up with this girl, you just do whatever makes you happy. You know, you're, she was doing whatever she needed to do to keep body and soul together and her put food on table for little baby Winston um her child yeah and so forth and i'm like pamela you just do whatever you need to do to to get through this and i'm with you on this one um even though some of the things that she's doing i would find you know personally not good life choices um but i did feel like she was written pretty sympathetically yeah even when she was doing things i thought were probably shocking at the time and maybe we're shocking now sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for people in public office or people around people in public office uh, yes it was interesting and, though but and it was also interesting on the like political front like if people had known that uh winston churchill's son is a completely unreliable person who leaves secret papers in the backs of cars and goes out drinking with his friends and gambles fortunes away to who knows who and is cheating on his wife who's cheating on him with American emissaries uh, and they aren't living together anymore and she's living in his hotel and he's off who knows where. If the British people had known all that, does it make a difference to their view of Winston Churchill as the guy who's going to save us all? Yes. And if they were modern day era things and we know more about them as people than maybe we should or want to know, how does that impact the messaging? And that was interesting to me in terms of like control of information, how you control what information is released and to whom and what papers are holding on to and not reporting that they could or choosing to report that you wish they wouldn't. Um, that was all fascinating in terms of, of 
the modern situation and you wonder whether whether a leader can ever push a message like that again or whether we're always going to know that the leader is wearing pink silk underwear and that that's going to detract from from their image or mythos um, or whether we're going to find it endearing and adorable and and whether or not the people repeating the message of this pink silk underwear is endearing or repeating the message of this pink silk underwear is a sign that the world's coming to an end. Right. Right. To extend yeah. this metaphor um, will prevail. Right. Yeah. Like it's not up to the leader. To just, dis- yeah. I mean. Yeah. 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 Gosh, so much thinking. So much thinking. So it, do you think that having to stop and think is why it took each of us so long to read this book? Yes. I think so. I needed breaks from it because I don't often engage with engage with how I view the world and how how I evaluate all the information I'm taking in from the world at that level. And this book kept making me do that. I don't know if it was supposed to be making me do that, but given the times we're in and like all the things going on in the world, I had to stop and think about, well, what does this look like now over and over and over? Yes, I I agree. And it's, it's so detailed, um, fascinatingly detailed, but it was not a book that I felt like I could speed read or skim. I had to pay attention the whole time. I couldn't, um, I read it in in paper and I don't think I could read it in audio. I couldn't do the dishes while listening to this no. printed in a file because I would have to stop and then go back and re-listen to the whole thing again to get those details down. And I did stop and research like a lot of stuff, stuff I didn't know. Like when the British fight a naval battle against the French, totally did not know they had ever done that. Uh, and I had to stop and go look it up and learn more about it. And I did have to stop and mull what does this mean to me now? Or how does this change my view of what I thought I knew? Um, and it just took forever to read this book. So not a weekend read, more like a month read. Right. Uh, but boy, you get your value for money. If you're going by price of book per minute of entertainment, this is a cheap book. Cause it really is. You're really. Really yeah, is. I bought the paper copy also and uh, meant to loan it to my dad when he was here last week, but um, wasn't done with it. So <laughs> I will eventually loan it to him. Yeah, but crate um, is cheap. Yeah, okay. it is. Um, but it was, and I also like the chapters sometimes were long and sometimes were short, mm-hmm. but I needed to pause between each one because even the chapters that were a sentence or a paragraph had a lot to say <laughs> where I needed to kind of process them a little before I went to the next chapter. I have lots of reasons why this took so long to read, yeah, as it turns yeah. out. And so, they're mostly valid. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mostly valid. Um, I did stop in the middle and read other uh, books and come back to it because I was like, it's overwhelming. I'm going to come back. So this leads me uh, kind of out of order to to a book I'm reading right now called The Power of Ritual. Yes. Um, which is kind of about, so far, I'm not that far into it, about 
taking things in my own life and using them in the same way that people use religious texts or actions to give me more insight or ability to parse the world. Um, and this is a book I have I have have alerted you to as well. So you, I know you have read at least this little scrap I've read. Yes. So at one point it's talking about sacred texts and taking a book that you love that speaks to you and using it as a sacred text. It says, reading about other people improves our ability to understand and cooperate with others and ultimately to understand ourselves. And this writer, I think, uses Harry Potter as a sacred text, the first one. And I had been wondering what, what books I would use as sacred texts. But do you think that you could use this book as a sacred text to, to read it based on whatever is going on in your life or whatever questions you need to answer or whatever you need to mull and contemplate to help you find clarity or answers? I am on the fence because I think that this book makes me want to go back to like Churchill's speeches that this book quotes from sometimes um, and maybe consider those as a as a place to as a place to really do close reading and decide how th how those speeches designed to you know make people think and feel certain ways but also to not give up to find their courage to to persist even if things seem like they could get overwhelming and out of control uh, to keep trusting in the power of the government and the community to sustain um, over this impending doom I feel like those speeches would make better sacred texts um, for those reasons um, and because I think that they're a lot shorter than this book <laughs> Um, and this book has a whole bunch of stuff quoting Hitler, and I don't want that to be part of my sacred text. Yeah, I you one of Hitler's speeches. I would what I really wanted access to where there's these people who I can't remember what we call them. They're like street observers or daily observers. They're mass people, observation. Mass observation. Yes, who are people who keep diaries about whatever they see going on around them, and then they send those into the central authority so that you can kind of gauge how it is for Joe and Jane's citizen um, and whether they are, are on board with this. And I, I really would love to, that's what I wished I had access to were those texts complete, just the day-to-day -day, um, small-level observation of life and I thought that I might find that to be a sacred text to say this because a lot of my life is day-to-day -day drudgery um, stupid adulting that I have to do over and over and over again uh, and when when I lose my way it's because I am having trouble finding the meaning in the small level reality of my life uh, and how that contributes to a larger story of family, community, nation, world. Um, and I felt that I might find a, a great deal of, of, of sacred text ability in seeing 
the similarities between my own action struggles life and this other life that I feel is being part of this mythic time of world change uh, and that the actions of those people and those little actions in their days contributed to the overall success of the British people in this moment against this evil force. Um, yeah. I love that idea. And I, I love it for a bunch of reasons. And one thing it makes me think of is like every once in a while, I've tried to keep one of those like five-year diaries where uh -huh. it has 365 pages and you just write a little bit each day and then it builds up and you can see. But like really, it just defaults to me looking at my own Facebook memories. <laughs> I think it would be cool to have access to other people's older published diaries or, you know, available diaries and and look at like what this day has been like for other humans over time and then even add your own <laughs> mundane adulting so that every day isn't like what big thing will I write so that I see it a year from now and five years from now but is simply I am a human as part of this recurring humanity of daily life I love that yeah maybe you should uh, maybe this could be a, a big gigantic project for you Lissa to create this That'll keep Maybe. you busy. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, yes. But it's, and, and I imagine, I was, th I was thinking about that. It's like, if, if I, if you wrote a little something every day, if you were a mass observer, if you were John Colville writing his secret diary, are there things that are going to leak into it that you don't want other people to know? They're really personal. That maybe, you know, if I'm reading it, that you wrote, I'm going to find meaning in it, but that you are feeling squishy about other people having access to. Um, both of us being very private people. people. If you've been out there in the world, you know this, that uh, that uh, we keep a lot of it pretty close, I think, both of us. Um, my mother is uh, 89, I think, Mom. Is that right? And... She's a brilliant letter writer <laughs> all of her life. She's been a great, prolific letter writer, and she's really brilliant at writing letters. And the trouble she's having now is that all of her friends saved all of her letters, everything she ever wrote to them. She just got, you know, you write her a letter, she reads it, she loves it, she gets rid of it. But everybody saved all of her letters, and now they want to send them all back to her. Mm -hmm. um, or their, their heirs and assigns want to send them all back. So here's the 4,000 letters that you wrote, um, my parent, over your your lifetime and send them back to you and she her impulse was to say you know shred them but then she asked me just as like are you gonna want these and I'm like no um because I knew that there would be things in it her struggles being my parent um right you know and the 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 horror of living in a very small town in a very rural area uh, at that point in time in the past that she might not want me to read she would want me to read an edited version of that not the raw reality of it um so i was like just have them shred it you know um let it go if you want to and she did um also she was horrified to think that that she might have this uh, avalanche of paper and that then i might have this avalanche of paper um but it's interesting i myself have 
uh, before I married my husband, we never lived within a thousand miles of each other. And I saw him five times before we got married. But we wrote each other letters back and forth. Uh, and all those letters I wrote to him, he saved. And he's, they're still here, tied up with a ribbon somewhere. And I'm like, maybe I should go and burn notes as well. And they are the daily minutia of my life, what I did today, every right. day, for, you know, a couple of years. Um, but also lots of personal um, feelings of th that time of, of change and, and growth and so forth. And on the one hand, that's lovely. And on the other hand, I think, man, I should go burn those today. So, uh, but then, of course, the Eric Larsons of the future could not use my daily letters to write some, some large and super interesting book about those times. It's so, a dilemma. It is a dilemma. What shall we do? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. <laughs> and each person gets to decide, right? Like, we only have in this book both the things Eric Larson selected to share right. and the ones that advanced his compelling narrative about Churchill and the ones he had access to and the ones that were saved and the ones that were originally written. Mm -hmm. Right. So we just get a very small story and Eric Larson makes it and, look. And, and it's been a long effortless. time. It's like, like most of these people are dead or gone so that they're not there to whatever intimate worries, John Colville worrying about his reactions to this girl who does not love him like she should and his his desire both to, to like his inability to let her go and his like anger emotion at the fact that she, she just does not love him like she should and his reaction when she goes with somebody else. Those are really personal things, but there is no more John Colville anymore. So enough time has passed that that the, the lack of benefit to him of us looking at those things maybe is, is lessened even if it's made more impactful to us or to this story and how it adds to the story um, as well. So the blessings of time. Right, and Eric Larson turns them into his own kind of blessing for the future of here are all the ways that we can know this, know this past, know about the people in the Blitz. No, it's not just Churchill's version of it, but here are individuals' version. Here's a story or, bigger than. Right. And, it, and it's a reinterpretation. It's like there's how we looked at this point in time right afterwards, right? How we chose to, to present World War II in the late 1940s and in the 1950s and in the 1960s war movies that are looking at our what's going on in Vietnam versus... And how we're interpreting World War II versus the lens of how we feel about war now or um, now this book and kind of an age of the cult of personality um, or that the, the desire or lack of desire to know more intimately our leaders or the change in messaging over time and how messaging has changed completely in the, the era of, of social media and a 24-hour news cycle and stuff like that. Um, and it's a, it, yeah. 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 It's a whale of a book, uh, exhausting and wonderful. It's splendid. It's splendid. It's not vile. It's not vile. No, no vileness. All splendid uh, is our rating on that one, I think. Yes, agreed. <laughs> 
So speaking of the past and history and reinterpretation, or re-examination of the past, next time we are going to read two books that are fantasy books for youth, um, which are The Wizard of A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin and The Book of Three, which is the first of the Chronicles of Prydain books by Lloyd Alexander. And I... We've decided to do this because we fell into conversation, right, Lissa? Yes. Yes. Um, Lissa is, has been reading A Wizard of Earthsea, and it's a book that I read when I was maybe 15 or 16 and haven't read since. So I can take a look at, you know, we can look, we can look at how we react to that book differently now versus then. Have you ever read it before? No. Okay. So Lissa's reading it for the first time. I'm reading it after a <laughs> decade. Brief, brief hiatus. pause. Yes. <laughs> And the second is The Book of Three, uh, which is a book that was profoundly influential to me as a 12 or 13-year-old and which Lissa has never read. So uh, we're going to read Blasts from the Past, fantasy books for youth from that have stood the test of time maybe or that have been famous books for a long time. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to it as well, even though I have not read them or I've read a part of A Wizard of Earthsea um, because I think they're both like classic and influential and and I've never read them. Yeah. I'm excited. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations to thebookevangelist at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.